Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. Well, I'm excited. Excited about uh, just continuing where we started last week as we talked about um, your verse and and really just kind of where we're, where we're headed with this. Really, I should have called it your chapter because we're looking at the whole of Romans chapter 8 to get to my verse. Um, and, and I think there's probably even different verses, different seasons, as I mentioned last week, that really just minister to you and what God's doing in your life uh, during that time. And today, I think we're going to really be blessed as we continue to look at this and, and what God is saying to us. And how many of you guys were here last week? Anybody catch week one of your verse? If you didn't go, go online, Bruce does such a great job of, of keeping them online, um, keeping the podcast up there, usually about middle of the week. Usually Thursday, he's pretty good. Thursday usually drops from the Sunday before. He, does, he edits them. He doesn't just take what I say. He, like, he makes it better, right? He takes what I say, and then he makes it better. And so he, he adds his snazzy intro and then cuts out all my stupid jokes and, and things I say about my wife usually. That's probably what it really should be. And so last week, as we looked, we did quite a bit of um, kind of foundation laying, a lot of groundwork. And, and I found out at the end of my sermon that I had a button on my shirt that was unbuttoned the entire time I was preaching. Shame on all of you that were here last week that raised your hand a second ago that you did not tell me. So today I, I'm like double checking, triple checking. It's probably going to, I'm probably going to pop another one. Okay. It's just going to like, it's just going to blow. All right, let's get back to Romans chapter 8 before I get myself in trouble. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> oh, it's so good to be able to laugh and have fun. Uh, you know, God, God made fun, right? God made fun. We can, we can laugh and we can have fun. Uh, unless you're allergic to fun, in which case, I don't know. You need, need another place. So as we looked last week, Paul's writing a letter to a group of believers um, that are already well-established, the church has been there. Um, they've been up and running. Possibly, we could even argue that they were a part of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Some of those who were visiting from Rome and Jerusalem uh, that particular day, that they went back as a result of what the Lord did on that day, on that day of Pentecost, uh, and established the church that Paul is even writing to here in roughly 56, 57. I would say it's probably the end of 56 into early 57 when Paul is pinning this, and he's writing it from Corinth. He's not actually ever been to Rome at this point. He desires to go there. Um, we'll find out that Rome will be where Paul's life will end, uh, but he's not yet traveled there yet. He has not been able to visit there. He's already planted quite a few other churches, but he's hanging out in Corinth, and he's there for about three months during a winter, and I believe that's when he wrote this to, to Rome. He sends it with one of his friends. Uh, Phoebe gets to run the letter, we're told, at the end to the church in Rome, and She's kind of her amb the, his ambassador agent, so to speak, uh, to the church there in Rome. And, and, and really what we see is that Paul is really having to warm up the church to where he's headed because he didn't have a pre-existing relationship with them. He's having to really earn some credibility for what he wants to tell them regarding the equality of all believers, Jew and Gentile being alike. And so, you know, last week, um, and we looked at how there was this desire for him, and, and he would say things like, if I was there, you know, in a lot of his letters, right? Paul would say that, and, oh, I desire to come to you again, because as an apostle, 
a lot of the letters that he's writing, he's having to bring correction to some things that they're not doing that he's taught them, right? But he has that authority. He has that apostolic connection to them. He is their father in the faith, so to speak. And so you see that in, in, as he writes to the Corinthian church, as he writes to Galatia and, and the church in Ephesus, he writes a lot of how I desire to come to you, how if I were there, I would even be bringing some correction to this area. You guys need to really step up in this and that. And, and so, but we don't get that with this letter to Rome, to the church in Rome, because he hadn't established that, that church. He hadn't uh, been the one that laid the foundation. But what we can see is that Paul, he really values the ability for a church to run autonomously. As an apostle, yes, he wants to pioneer churches. He wants to see them grow. He wants them to be healthy. He will check in and make sure they are healthy. But he really praises them when they are doing things in a self-sustaining way. And um, I I even mentioned this as we were having a, a lunch a couple of Sundays ago with those that had signed up for life groups. I mentioned that um, one of my professors that I had who really taught about the apostolic and fivefold ministry, team ministry, um, talked about how a lot of what we have today um, is more of a Christian company. Because if you remove the figurehead and the finances, it probably wouldn't continue to run, which is a real a sad truth for us to face, especially for the churches that we've established in the West. And it challenges me for what kind of what kind of institution, so to speak, are we establishing here? Is it a community that people are being developed and, and elders empowered and, and leaders raised and, and disciples made? Or is it one that is so run by a figurehead? I mean, here I am as the figurehead having to ask myself these questions in front of you, right? That if you removed me and you removed the, fine, the budget, what would continue to exist here? And uh, whether you agree with that or not, I'm challenged by the idea because that's a lot of what I see in the New Testament church, especially as I reflect with that lens on the writings of Paul, on what he is writing to those churches that he has established. But here we have Rome, who's got a church that preexisted before him. And this congregation, it, it is healthy for the most part, but there are some theological points that maybe haven't been highlighted or hit for them especially in, in, in retrospect of the Jew and Gentile promises being shared together. And so a lot of the theology that Paul lays here at the beginning was the encouragement of the Gentile Christians in their faith, leveling that playing field of God's goodness and grace for all to be partakers of those precious, precious promises. He removes that barrier of superiority. And how many of you know, just because we don't look at it through the, the, the mantra of a Jew versus a Gentile, that, that lens there, that we still have spiritual superiority in our context here. We have those that feel like maybe they are more uh, credible in their faith, maybe have earned a degree, maybe they've done something in their life to be able to give them the right to do this or that in ministry. And we have a lot of people that don't feel qualified. And I feel like the Lord has called us to be a priesthood of all believers. That what the Lord has called certain leadership to do, according to Ephesians 4, is to literally empower the people to do the work of ministry, to train and to develop. And that's something that, that is in my heart that, hey, guess what? There's, there's going to be ministries that we start here at this church, but guess who's probably not going to start them? This guy, the one you're looking at. Because I'm not, qual- I'm not called to do that. 
I'm not called to start the women's ministry. Well, I might be. I'm not called to, to start a men's ministry and to run the life group ministry and to, you know, to strengthen the, the children's ministry upstairs and down. And, you know, I'm not called to do it all. I'm just not. And if I become the bottleneck to everything we're called to do in our outreaches and in our ministries, then we won't do very much. So my goal is to how do I open this up? How do I empower the people? How do I see you instead of my dream being to become successful? My dream is to see you fulfill yours, what God has placed inside you. And I believe a lot of what Paul does here is he tries to level that playing field. He tries to support what God has already revealed to them through his precious promises. And he begins by saying that we all need justification by faith. We all start here. That what God has given you in gifts will get there, right? Paul gets there later on towards the, the latter chapters, 12, 13. He said, we've got to start here. This is where we all receive justification. Your works don't earn you anything that the guy next to you can't also have. And I think that's the beauty of what Christ has done. And, and yes, while justification by faith is crucial, we also see that he talks about the life in Christ, what is it that the secret of life through Christ unlocks for us, removes the rigidity and the bareness of legal terminology for what Paul really sets up? And he discloses this positive and dynamic relationship the believer can have with God and with his son. And thankfully, we don't have to choose between those two ideas that Paul introduces. We have them together. Because without justification, there can be no life in Christ and such life in turn confirms the reality of what he has done in us. And so we started last week with my chapter, right? Your verse, my chapter, with Romans 8, verse 1. And so I just want to hit that one more time. We said, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. Plain and simple, this is it. There is no condemnation for those who are in him. And this is the gospel for which Paul says he's not ashamed, for which he says, I will work tirelessly, that you would find that you have acceptance, forgiveness, and freedom. That you find that in Christ you have acceptance, forgiveness, and freedom. And for me, I use those words strategically because he wants you to know that in Christ you have already been accepted as a son and as a daughter for what you were originally designed and created for. And on top of that, when in Christ, yes, I'm accepted, but I'm also forgiven. What had once kept me apart, the Lord has already established a bridge that cannot waver, cannot shake, will not falter through the work of Christ that we find forgiveness and atonement for our sins. And then we find freedom. Now, how many of you know that's the work that is happening in our life now on this side of our encounter with Christ? And so from Romans 8, we begin to look at how that the Son of God is held up to such a view that the gospel would center on him and that there would, it would pale, the work that Christ would do would pale in comparison to what we have experienced with the fall of Adam. And I mentioned that last week, and I don't think I, I could say it enough, is that we are so aware of our deficits. I, I don't know how you're wired, but for me, I have to be really, really careful because when I am, when I walk into, I could walk into where you work, I could walk into, especially my job, I can be in conversations with you and I automatically will be thinking about how things can be made better. 
how they could be better, how, how, what we could fix, how this could be more efficient. Why isn't the person at Cracker Barrel taking our order? They just took the person's order at the table next to me and it's got a towel on the table when I sat down. What, what is going you know, I'm, I like to always see about how things can be better. Now that can be tricky, right? You can become very negative in that, in that mindset. But when I look at what, what Paul is doing here, he says, hey, Christ, Christ has done so much more than what we are aware of that Adam has done. Adam has made us so aware of all the negative and what could be better and what, could, what we could say change, right? What could be enhanced? What could be modified? How, how could we live life more efficiently and not get caught up in the tangles of life, right? We are so aware, I am so aware of what Adam did through the fall in my life every day. But what if we became even more aware of what Christ has unlocked, of the potential now that we can partake of through the divine nature that he's given us access to? What if we were more aware of the eternal reality of what Jesus has done that makes what Adam did and unlocked in us in our sinful nature pale in comparison? And that's where I believe Paul is really hitting this chapter. He's saying, listen, the spiritual role in our life is to nurture this new creation in this life. And he he does it by assuring sonship, which is where we'll get in the middle of this chapter, but also release from the bondage of sin, which is what we looked at last week. And I want us to head straight into our text for today. Romans 8, if you have it or if it's on your phone, would you dial it up? We're going to be looking at verses, we're going to start at verse 5. So Romans 8, we've got it on the screen as well, starting in verse 5. See how far we make it through today. So Paul has said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he's building up what the law versus the spirit have done and unlocked in our lives. And he says in verse five, he says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. Pretty simple, right? The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Verse seven, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it even do so. And finally, in verse eight, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. If you'll go back to verse five. So Paul does a lot of dialogue here about the flesh and the spirit. And I think sometimes it can get confusing because Paul will use those term, the term uh, sarke, the, the flesh, to mean different things. He could literally just be referring to your body, your physical flesh, or for, for in this uh, case, he's talking about a sinful nature, an unregenerated uh, side of us that has not been redeemed, our fleshly desires, the, the desires that we were born with due to that original sin. And he says here, he says, those who live according to the flesh, that unregenerated side of yourselves, you have your mind set on what that flesh desires. You can't help but just follow the the ways of the flesh, of what that nature wants to do. He says, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit, those who have their minds set on what the Spirit desires, it's such a contrast. You have one that leads to death and another that leads to life and peace. And so that, that phrase here is literally talking about to, to be in the flesh, to be controlled by that sinful nature, to be in that unregenerated state. 
And, and to live according to the flesh is to have the flesh as your regulating principles for your life. To say that this is what drives me, this is my value, so it is based on this that has not been redeemed. And Paul is saying, if you continue to conduct yourselves in these ways, it will lead to a place that, that leads to death. It will lead to not only spiritual death, but even physical death. And he introduces these terms in verse 4, but now he's giving greater contrast to what they look like and how they play out in our lives. And this isn't the only place we find this in Paul's, in Paul's letters, right? We see this in a lot of what he writes. In Galatians 5, if you'll go there for me, Zay, in Galatians 5, verse 16, he says, So I say, walk by the Spirit. And when you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay. All right, Paul, that sounds easy. I don't know if it really is going to be easy. And then verse 17, he says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. Okay, yeah, I, I get that and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh, and they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do whatever you want. And I feel like he's almost even highlighted back to, to chapter seven of Romans of what he talks about the struggle that we have to, to, to do what we don't wanna do and not do what we wish we were doing and, and that struggle, but thanks be to God, he says, who has brought us this freedom. And for me, Paul really boils it down to what, what you have your mind set on. And when we have our minds set on the things of the Spirit, we are able to stay in stride with what His ways are, with what He has for our life. And, and I think these ideas are almost interchangeably that where our mind dwells, so where our feet follow. That where our mind dwells, so where our feet follow. That what we think about, what consumes us, what we dwell on, that's what we're gonna live out in our lives. And Paul spends so much time talking about this that he's saying, hey, you can't, you can't hear this enough, that what you entertain up here is what you're gonna end up living out right here. And I don't know if you ever struggle with some of those, those rabbit trails that your thoughts can send you down, but, but I'll tell you, even this week, I was reminded that from a place of hurt, when we are wounded or offended or have experienced something, how many of you know the first thing that begins to carry you away is, is your thoughts, right? and your thoughts will just take you down a spiral. You know they're unhealthy. You know the emotions that it's bringing. None of it's gonna benefit you. And, and usually that spiral, oh man, just I'm, I'm telling you from like firsthand experience again, right? This is still what we, we are in this battle of keeping our mind stayed on the Lord and following what he has for us and the freedom that the spirit will unlock for us. But usually in our flesh and oh, the enemy will let us dwell there forever, right? He'll even help some other thoughts kind of sneak in there. When we get our minds set on things, especially from a place of hurt, because how many of you know from a place of hurt, you're going to justify your thoughts, you're going to justify your feelings, you're going to justify why you are now going to create barriers and, and create distance so that you begin to do, I mean, some, some foolish things that we do to protect ourselves from getting hurt again and, and the spiral of thoughts begin to insulate us in negativity. And so our thoughts are so crucial and Paul is, is, is just blasting that to them. Listen, set your mind on the things of the spirit because we will give ourselves some facts. We played truth or dare, uh, not truth or dare, two, uh, two truths and a lie last week with our young adults. And uh, Nolan said this, he said, he's like, oh man, any good lie's got a little bit of truth sprinkled on it because we it was really hard to pick his out. He's like, oh, any good lie's got a, got a little bit of truth sprinkled on it. But usually the things that we really begin to warp in our mind, they've got facts sprinkled all over it. 
And I'm using facts, not truth. And let me explain the difference. Because we will usually, oh, this, my Brittany, my Josh, it's driving me crazy today. There it goes again, Meshach. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to end up using that hand mic. Oh, my goodness. Give me a second. Bruce, cut this out, all right? Edit this. I'm going to have to tape it. I'm going to have to like, tape to the side of my head or something. This is ridiculous. Okay. It's going to last like three seconds. All right, I'm going to stand real still. So <laughs> this won't be awkward at all. why you don't go there anymore. <laughs> All right, back on track. So usually, right, let me just tell you this, this week for me, and it doesn't happen often, but man, I really got, I really got offended. I got hurt. I feel like I had put myself out there in a vulnerable way and I got hurt by someone who means a lot to me. And guess what? It no longer had anything to do with the small situation that it was about, Okay. I recognize that. But as soon as I wasn't communicating about it, as soon as we didn't work it out, the thoughts start, right? And I've got some facts here of this and that and, and what they haven't done and what I feel like I've done, and, and, and I start stacking those against each other. I've got facts, but those facts are not bringing me any freedom. They are not bringing me any restoration. Those facts are actually bringing me more bondage the way that the enemy in my flesh is using them. And it is so unhealthy that until we begin to communicate that with someone, until we work through those and we start to say, you know what, even my facts, they bow the knee to the truth of what is more important, which is our relationship, which is our, our love for each other, which is our commitment, which is so many other things than this small situation that has blown out of proportion up here. And my emotions are having a heyday with it. And the enemy's glad to create this wedge. How many of you know if we continue to dwell on those things in every area of our life, we become so insulated in negativity that it'll eat us alive. We will have no life in peace. Instead, we will be rotting away over here in death because we've allowed the flesh to have a heyday because our mind has been dwelling there. Does that make sense? Anybody else relate to that process? I think the Lord may have had me go through that tough time just to be able to say that. But, but we do. That's, that's real life. That's what happens. But we have to communicate about it. We've got, to, we've got to cut that off at the head. If we allow it to fester, even a little bit of death in our life, if we allow that to fester, boy, it's going to get ugly real quick in our soul. And when that's, not the, that's not the redeemed part of us that we want the Lord to really work in that area. So let's bring that to him. And so I, I think about what 1 John talks about in, in, the, in the aspect of sin and lawlessness and what it, and what it means and in, in what Paul is saying here, John writes this in 1 John chapter 3. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. Okay. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know in verse 5 that he appeared, speaking of Jesus, that Jesus, that he might take away our sins. This is the reason that Jesus appeared, so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Verse six, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. That sounds really harsh. It sounds very black and white. For me, the law points out sin and to break the law is sin. But remember, we have one who has taken away our sin. We have an advocate. Now, what this is not saying 
because we have no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What this is not saying is that, yes, the penalty of sin that we deserve has been removed in Christ. But there is one who, if we continue in sin, we have to look back and see what kind of repentance has even taken place. And what I would say here is we're not living a perfect life. None of us are going to live that perfect life that, that we feel like, oh, how could I say that if, oh, I never sin? No, if we keep on sinning, if we are living a life of sin, we have to look back and see what kind of encounter have we had with the kindness of God. Where have we not seen his love to transform our life? Because something isn't, isn't adding up, it's not meeting. And I want to I break this down in, in 1 John 3, 5. It says, but when he appears to you, he takes away our sin. And in him, there is no sin. And in verse six, no one who lives in him keeps sinning. And that is a, for, for the, if there's any other nerd in here besides me, that is a present active indicative third person singular. It just literally means you no longer keep sinning. You no longer are living in a lifestyle of sin. And then the second, the second word there is, but remember, no one who continues to sin, that's a participle. And, and the difference for me there would be no one will continue sinning. We won't continue in a lifestyle. We won't be embraced in something that is, that is literally contrary to truth if we have encountered Christ. Now, again, I'm not preaching perfection. Please don't, please don't hear that. You just heard like I, I had a week where I had to work through some stuff, right? But if I'm willing to give myself to death over and over in my thoughts and my ways and I'm following the flesh, there comes a point where the life of the Spirit is no longer evident in my life. And I don't want to get into you know, how far is too far and, and backsliding is it possible and walking away from the Lord. What I want us to look at is that there is something that Paul says is so important with where we dwell our thoughts and how it will work out into how we live our life. We know, we be, we do. We know God's truth and his love for us. We become who he's called us to be, and then we can live out what he empowers us to do. Instead, he draws our attention, Paul is drawing our attention to this place of strength and power for our spiritual journey, where our minds and thoughts dwell. This is the battle for spiritual life. This is where it is all decided, where death and life happen right here. It's happening right here in this gray matter between the ears. What we entertain here is what we will walk out in our life. Colossians 3, this is probably one of my favorite passages of scripture. This could be tattooed on the other arm, right? This could be on the other. Anyways. <laughs> I won't say anything else. Colossians 3. I have no tattoos, by the way, in case you're wondering. I have zero tattoos. It's not because, anyways, Colossians 3, verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. He's already talked about the things that we're putting aside. We're putting away the works of the flesh. We're not following sexual morality and uh, lying. And cheating. He's, he's, he's listed all those out in, at the end of chapter two. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above. Or another translation, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then verse two, I love this. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Can you, is verse two in there, Zay? Is verse two in there? And I love this one. 
If you want to memorize a couple of verses this week, these, these will be some great ones. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, Emmanuel. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Have you ever heard the statement that, oh man, so-and-so is so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good, right? And I've been around some flakes, all right? I've been around some folks that I'm like, yeah, that's not really heavenly minded. That's just weird, all right? They're just weird. And they're masking that with Jesus. And that's not, anyways. So I understand where that statement probably comes from, that they're like, he is so spiritually minded. He's so heavenly minded that he's not even attuned to what's happening down here. There's no reality check in his life. I would really, I'd really fact check that, right? I would tell you that we are probably no earthly good until we are heavenly minded. Until we are so attuned to what the Father's heart is for the people that we're working with, for our family, for ourselves, for our spouse, for our families, we have no mindset for the way that Christ has for them. Instead, what are we doing? We're just trying to, trying to just get through and not cause too much conflict and let's just live in harmony and peace, but it's not empowered by the Spirit. I would say that you are no earthly good until you are heavenly minded. I believe that's what Paul would agree with. I believe that's what Jesus would say. He would say, we live for a kingdom that is not of this world. Recently, I posted something. I, I just shared an article. How many of you know on Facebook, all you have to do is share an article and you're already for things and against things that you had no idea you were for and against. You didn't know you had to be pigeonholed, right? I shared an article about a presidential candidate running for the Democratic Party and it was written by a president of a school I went to um, right out of high school down in Florida. And, and I really respect this leader. I respect him for being very scripturally based, uh, pretty unbiased, very kingdom minded. And I simply just shared the article that he had posted and immediately, well, you believe this, you believe that. You, I'm like, what? How come I, I, just share, I just shared this? And I had, a, I had a, a professor that immediately posted on it. Um, who I had at Johnson. And he was released from his time at Johnson when he came out, when he came out as a homosexual. And the article that I posted was about Pete. Um, I don't even know how to say his last name. I, can I say a booty gig? Because it looks like booty gig. No, nah, Buttigieg. So Pete Buttigieg, he, he's running for a Democratic candidacy, but he has come out as a, as a believer, as a strong Christian. And, and obviously, he's also um, kissed his, his male spouse. Uh, in public forum. And so we, we understand he's homosexual and he's um, also have some issues with his abortion stance and some other things like what he, where he believes life starts. Um, but just by sharing something, how many of you know you're going to have people come, come against you real quick who misunderstand why you're posting it? And I was really glad though that this professor, that he commented first and he said, oh, you must also want all homosexuals to be put to death and, and all this and all that. And he's trying to make me pigeonholed into an extreme interpretation of Scripture that I must operate under an Old Testament law with, with no understanding of grace, that my view of God's image now means that I also believe all these other things. And then it also, a, a few comments later, how many of you know it must also mean that I can tolerate every aspect of our current president? And I'm like, what do these even have to do with anything? I don't get it. My, my take is that, hey, if we are going to call ourselves believers, then we've got to be able to be willing to accept what we believe the scripture within that believer's context, what it says is truth. For me, what is at stake both in Trump and any other presidential candidate that claims to know Christ 
is how are we representing his image well? And for me, it's his image. Any sin, any breaking of the law comes back to, oh, you broke a rule, you did this, and it says that. It has to do with who he is. He did not establish a law that does not exemplify his very nature and what is best because of who he is, and we're the only creation that has been created in his image. What is best for us? And so for me, let's not feel like we have to be pigeonholed because we may be filled with the Spirit, and that's what they were saying. That's what my professor was saying. He's like, I'm I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and a a minister, and he is. He's a rector at um, at the, the Home Alone Church right outside of Chicago, the one from Home Alone 1. He's the rector there at Grace um, Episcopal Church. And, and I said, hey, guess what? You, you, I didn't say this on Facebook. I said it in my mind. I said, you may be filled with the Spirit, but it's not God's Holy Spirit because He does a really good job of what He is sent to do. And what is the Holy Spirit sent to do? He tells us in John 16 that when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Right now, they know that the Holy Spirit is sent to convict some of y'all, some of y'all about to, anyways, verse nine, concerning sin, because you don't believe in me. What? How does that even add up? Why is John saying it? Like, why does he record what Jesus is saying here like this? Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me, because sin points out who I am. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and we have an advocate who stands before the Father on our behalf, and you will no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because of the ruler of this world is judge. We will all stand before a judge one day, but we need to know we're operating in a world that has already stood judged, that the ruler of this world, the spirit of the air, the enemy that comes against us, he has nothing on what our God has already declared about him. And so we set our mind on things above, where Christ is seated, We put our thoughts on things above. We become so heavenly minded, seeing from the perspective of Christ where we are seated next to him. Colossians 3 would tell us. That's where we operate from. And the Holy Spirit comes with this assignment in our lives to convict us regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. And and he's really good at it. Whether I give into it all the time or not, whether I follow his promptings and his leadings, the Holy Spirit is really good at his job. And so when we claim to have the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't line up with Scripture, that's not the Holy Spirit's work in our life. We may not be giving in to what He's trying to do in our life, or we may not have Him altogether. This is Jesus' words of what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts and in our lives. And when we give our lives to Christ, He fills us with His Spirit. And these are the things we begin to experience as the Spirit and leads us and guides us into all truth. Amen. It's good. It's good what God does within us through his spirit. And I love what, uh, what 1 Corinthians 2.14 says. This is what Paul teaches about the person with the Holy Spirit. He says, he says the person without the spirit, is, do you have it back there, Zay? Did I put 1 Corinthians 2.14? The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them literally foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Stop trying to get your coworkers who aren't believers to understand your system of values. They don't get it. Your family that you love, that isn't following the Lord, they're not going to understand the things that are important to you. 
It is literally foolishness to them. Why you do what you do, what you base it on, does that mean you stop living your lives and you're ashamed of what you stand for? Absolutely not. But you're expecting them to understand something that they can't even understand. Because the revelation after encountering Christ for who he is hasn't happened in their life. So we pray for them. And we pray, God, please reveal yourself to them. Let them be overwhelmed by your love. Let them see you for who you are. Let them see the destiny that you have for their life because they're not gonna be able to understand. According to Paul's words here, the person without the spirit doesn't even accept the things that come from the spirit of God. They consider them foolishness and they cannot understand them because they are only discerned through the spirit. They will not understand the basis for which you make your decisions your rationale being based on eternal, heavenly things will not compute to them. It will seem foolish. And so we pray for them to have an awakening, an awakening to the reality of who he is in their life. Don't back down, don't act timid, but instead with understanding, be prepared to point them to the hope that you have. Be prepared to point them to the hope that you have. And this is what 1 Peter 3.15, I love what it says here. It says, but if your hearts revere Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. When our minds are fixed on Christ, when we begin to exemplify a set of principles that are not of this world, hopefully they will also see a tinge of hope that they don't have. And there will be, as we'll see in, in throughout Romans we won't get there. But in Romans, they, they literally, Paul says, he says, what you have, Gentiles, should make even the Jews jealous for the, pro- the fulfillment of the promises. Look what you, you have this satisfaction in life. And when we find Christ and the hope that he gives us, it should cause those that are lost and, and hopeless around us to want what we have, to want what we have. And Bruce, would you come up here for a second and play? But critically, he says, do this with gentleness and respect. I removed my post altogether because it wasn't having the effect that I had hoped that it would have. And I wasn't interested in getting in Facebook dialogues about any of it. I, I private messaged people and individually contacted folks that I needed to talk to uh, that I had relationship with. But it was people I didn't have relationship with, just siding on there. It wasn't giving me a context what I posted to be able to exemplify the hope that I have with gentleness and respect. It wasn't the right place for it. It didn't give me a platform for that. We do it with gentleness and respect because we remember where we've come from. We remember what it was like to be in bondage and darkness and without hope. We do it with gentleness and respect because we're not too far removed from knowing, boy, I'm just a couple of choices away from not having some hope in some areas of my life. We do it with gentleness and respect because we can have empathy and understanding for those we're around. We do it with gentleness and respect because we're believing that God is going to do something in their life because of what he's done in ours. We can share what he has shared with us and we continue to allow our minds to dwell on the things that he has for us, life in the spirit, the fullness of what he has created us for. And that life and peace will trickle to those that are around us. And we'll be prepared to share why we have this hope.
Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Jesus, I just thank you that you're reminding us how important it is of where our thoughts dwell. And I just pray for other folks like myself that, man, it can be so easy from places of hurt and offense to really allow our emotions and our um, allow the enemy in, in in areas where he just wants to create wedges and division and, and, and even sprinkle facts that lead to bondage, but don't bring freedom. It's not based in your truth. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to receive your spirit's strength to allow our minds to be stayed on you, Lord. As the prophet Isaiah would say, that he whose mind is stayed on you, you keep him in perfect peace. Lord, I'm just asking for your peace to fill this place. If you're in this place this morning with nobody looking around, every head bowed, and you would say, Michael, this week, I need you to be praying for me today, right now. There are some things that I'm going through. There are, there are some, some cycles in my mind or in my soul that are happening that I need the Lord to minister to me in a powerful and special way. If that's where you're at, I want to be praying for you this week. Would you just slip up your hand, please? Yes, okay. Amen, amen. Jesus. These are your people, Lord. The sheep of your pasture. Lord, I know there are folks in this room that have family right now that just is at each other torn apart. There are others that have some ailments that they don't even know how to overcome and, and find diagnosis and relief. And but Lord, right now I'm asking for the situations that, that those that raised their hand and those that didn't are walking through, Lord. Would you invade with your presence? Would you allow your Holy Spirit to, cap, to take captive thoughts that have began to reign and rule but are not bringing freedom? Literally now, I just ask, Holy Spirit, you would allow every one of us in this place to be able to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Lord, I thank you for the life and the peace that you bring. We thank you that there isn't condemnation in our life, but now we can experience what you created us for, the fullness of life. We thank you that we have one another. I pray, God, that we would lean on each other well. I pray, Lord, that we would, would have enough honesty and transparency in our relationships to say, man, I need, I need prayer, I need help. And so this week, God, I pray that we would not isolate Lord, we would connect and we would find strength in your people around us. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our source. We discern your people around us well. Lord, I just pray that throughout this week, we would have an opportunity to give an answer for the hope that you have filled us with, with gentleness and respect, remembering what you've done in our lives, hoping for what you're going to do in theirs, what you have put in us, May those around us be jealous to have the same peace and life that we have. We thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.